Last time we spoke about the incredible efforts made by crypto analysts at Radio Hypo, under the guidance of Joseph Rochefort. Their efforts allowed the Americans to figure out that Port Moresby was going to be invaded, and this allowed them to set up a carrier-based trap for the IGN. The Battle of Coral Sea was a confusing few days of hide-and-seek where both players were trying to find another. In the end, the battle was a great tactical victory for the Japanese and a great strategic victory for the Americans. Port Moresby was not invaded, and thus Australia could breathe a little bit easier. Yet, a few weeks ago, we had been talking about the conclusion to the Philippines campaign, with General Homa sending forces to seize the southern Philippine islands. Now, just a few more islands required neutralizing, and above all else, Corregidor needed to be conquered. This episode is the fall of Corregidor. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. And please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you give my personal channel a look at the Pacific War channel over at YouTube, where I've put out quite a few videos answering your questions from the Kings and Generals community. Answering such questions as, what would happen if Japan won the Battle of Midway? Check it out. It's kind of interesting, and it means a lot to me. April was a good month for General Homa, who desperately needed it. He received much-needed reinforcements that finally allowed him to break the battling bastards of Bataan, forcing General King to surrender his forces by April the 9th. General Homa followed this all up by launching operations against the Visayas Islands, which were successfully neutralized. Having secured the Visayas, General Homa now had a launching pad to attack Mindanao, where General Sharp was working tirelessly to build up its defenses. There he had three poorly trained and inadequately equipped Filipino divisions with very few artillery pieces, but with additional divisions being reorganized at Cagayan. Sharp's men did not have enough blankets, mosquito bars, nor enough uniforms. Each man had a 9-field 17 rifle, but many did not understand how to use them. Moreover, many of these rifles were defective and broke easily, and there was no spare parts around for most of these rifles, so if it broke, you toss it away. His men lacked grenades, gas masks, steel helmets, anti-tank guns, ammunition was very limited, and the most pressing issue was the lack of artillery. Now, while Corregidor was vitally important as it controlled the Manila Bay, MacArthur wanted Mindanao to be secure for the future reconquest of the Philippines. So keeping American control of the island was of utmost importance. Now the Japanese had already invaded Davao on December the 20th during the early part of the Philippines campaign and maintained a small presence there with a battalion-strong Mura detachment commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Mura Toshio. 
Colonel Mura had attempted extending his control into the interior, but without much success. In fact, if Mura did not have air or artillery support, it is highly likely the American forces would have tossed his forces right off the island. General Sharp had done quite a lot to prepare Mindanao. He organized the island into five defensive sectors, the Zambonga sector, Lanao sector in the northwest, the Cagayan sector in the north-central part of the island, the Agusan sector in the east, and the Cotabato-Davio sector in the center and southern part of the island. Despite some occasional skirmishes along the Digos and Agusan fronts in March, and a bit of heavy action in Zambonga, for the most part, the Japanese kept to Davao, and Sharp's men continued training. The time training was of enormous benefit. However, the lack of ammunition was quite a drawback. Supply was so limited that expenditure on the firing ranges was prohibited. Instead, the men spent long hours in simulated fire. Thus, most of the men who fought on Mindanao never fired a live round before they went into the heat of battle. After the fall of Panay and Cebu, General Homa prepared to finally seize Mindanao with a coordinated attack from three different directions. Colonel Mura was ordered to move to Digos, a short distance to the south, where he would continue on to strike towards the Seiri Highway. The other two forces were to be the Kawaguchi and Kawamura detachments, who would each make an amphibious assault. General Kawaguchi was to take his men ashore at Kotabato midway along the west coast at the mouth of the Mindanao River. From Cotabato, he would send some more men to travel to Route 1, continuing east towards the Sauri Highway, to meet up with Mura. The rest of his men would land at Parang, about 12 miles north of Cotabato, and push north along Route 1, past Lake Lanao, then east into the island's northern shore to join up with the Kawamura Detachment. Kawamura was to come ashore in northern Mindanao, at the head of Makajalar Bay, the starting point of the Sari Highway. He would send a small portion of his force to strike west, meeting up with Kawaguchi's men, but the bulk of his forces would march south through central Mindanao along the Sari Highway. Ultimately, all three detachments would be marching east, west, and south, joining up at the end. The idea was simply to encircle and neutralize the Americans on all three fronts. In late April, three battalions of the 10th Independent Garrison took over the garrison duty on Mindanao, Cebu, and Panay, freeing up Mura to finally take his men south from Davao to Digos. Meanwhile, Kawaguchi set sail from Cebu on April the 26th using six transports escorted by two destroyers, and five days later, Kawamura departed Panay. General Wainwright's order to General Sharp on April 30th was to hold all or as much of Mindanao as possible with the force he had. On the early morning of April 29th, Emperor Hirohito's birthday, the Kawaguchi detachment began landing at Cotabato and Parang. Defending Cotabato was the 101st Division, the 2nd Battalion, 104th Infantry, and a battalion of the 101st Field Artillery all led by Lieutenant Colonel Russell Nelson. He had placed half of his men around the town, with the rest posted farther inland, covering Route 1. Kawaguchi's men encountered little resistance getting ashore at Cotabato. 
Their advance into the town, however, proved much more difficult. The defenders resisted tenaciously until Japanese aircraft from Zabonga entered the fight. This pushed the Allied defenders towards the outskirts of Cotabato. At Parang, the forces made contact with Allied defenders at around 3.30 p.m., near the junction of Route 1. They held firm for over three hours until they had to withdraw along Route 1. This unfortunately left the road right open to Cotabato and flanked the defenders' rear there. Thus, the Allied force reluctantly had to abandon its position on the outskirts of Cotabato, and they pulled back along Route 1. The next day, General Kawaguchi began to advance east towards the Sauri Highway to meet up with Mura's forces. He had air support and saw very little action that day. Colonel Nelson received reports of the Japanese column's movements, but he was more concerned with Japanese troops sailing up the river. You see, he had nothing to prevent forces from disembarking along the riverbank and moving on to any point along Route 1, and perhaps creating roadblocks behind his men, something the Japanese particularly liked to do if you remember the Malayan campaign. Before the day was over, he was receiving reports Japanese forces were going up the river, and it was Kawaguchi's men using armored barges. He was in a tight bind, these river units were going to cut off his forces, so he had to make the decision to destroy roads and bridges and tell his men they had to withdraw. This meant there was nothing to prevent Kawaguchi from consolidating his control over the entire stretch of Route 1 from Cotabato all the way to Pekit now. Kawaguchi's men made a rapid advance east towards the Sauri Highway, trying to cut off the escaping route for the Allies. If he could reach Kabakan before them, he could not only cut them off, he would also be taking their rear. The next two days saw a lot of skirmishing and aerial attacks, but by May the 2nd, Colonel Mura launched a full-scale attack. He opened up with a four-hour artillery and motor attack, supported by some aerial strafing. This was followed up by an attack using three tanks. But by 5 p.m., the Filipino defenders remained victorious, having resisted the Japanese onslaught. Yet despite this, two hours later, they were ordered to withdraw towards the Seiri Highway, and they did so at night. Kawaguchi's forces fought their way to Kabakan, arriving too late to trap the Allied forces there. Over in Parang, on the morning of April the 29th, the Japanese were met at the beaches with intense resistance. Heavy machine gun fire rained down upon them, and the fight lasted over six hours. The defenders eventually had to pull out, lest they be outflanked, leading the Japanese to seize Parang. Now the Japanese would march upon Malabang, 22 miles northwest. Rather than march his men along the 22-mile stretch of Route 1, Kawaguchi instead left a small garrison at Parang, and he took his men on the very transports that landed them on Mindanao to come ashore at Malabang. The Japanese began to land just a few miles south of the town, and by the dawn of April the 30th, they were attacking the Filipino defenders there. After just a few hours and suffering heavy casualties, the defenders had to pull out despite a very brave counterattack made by the forces under Colonel Eugene Mitchell. Thus, the defenders found themselves withdrawing along Route 1. 
And by now you can probably picture it in your head. The Japanese are basically forcing all of these forces to go along the same routes, thus encircling them in the end. It was, in other words, kind of like herding everybody into a kill zone. And the Japanese were very quick on their heels, and they routed the defenders and managed to capture Colonel Mitchell. Now the Japanese had gained control of Route 1 going as far as Lake Lanao. Kawaguchi's forces began to march on the town of Ganassi, near the southwest corner of Lake Lanao, where Colonel Vesey was defending. A small skirmish began at Ganassi on the morning of May the 2nd, leading Vesey to deem the town indefensible and he would withdraw his men to another town named Bakolod, on the west shore of Lake Lanao. The Japanese consolidated at Ganassi, while Vesey destroyed a bridge across Route 1. The Japanese were halted by this, and to make matters worse, as one Japanese tank tried to ford the stream there, it was hit by a 2.95-inch mountain gun and knocked out. Colonel Vesey had positioned this mountain gun at a perfect angle to hit the Japanese right as they came up to the bridge, as one eyewitness remarked. It made up its concentration at point-blank range, what it lacked in accuracy. The Japanese jumped out of their trucks, and the casualties piled up. Despite the setback, Kawaguchi ordered the men to press forward, and soon their own artillery and air support took a toll on the defenders. By the late afternoon, Colonel Vesey had to pull his men out. With this victory, Kawaguchi had consolidated his control over the southern and western parts of Mindanao, leaving only the northern part standing. Meanwhile, the Kawamura detachment had landed at the mouth of the Cagayan and Tagalone River during the early hours of May the 3rd. With destroyer and aircraft support, Kawamura's forces quickly came ashore, but they were met with such heavy amounts of resistance that the commander at the scene, Major Webb stated, So successful was the attack that only the withdrawal of the 61st Field Artillery on my right prevented me from driving the enemy back into the sea. However, as indicated, the right flank was exposed, so Webb was forced to break off the beachhead engagement. General Sharp had been holding on to his reserves up until this point, and so he unleashed them, in an attempt to halt the Japanese advance along the Seri Highway. The Japanese had seized half the island and were within just a dozen miles of General Sharp's HQ, so it was time to throw the kitchen sink. They had with them all that remained of the artillery for Mindanao, three 2.95-inch guns. General Sharp formed a defensive position parallel to the Mangama Cannon, and they had hardly set up their guns when at 7.30 a.m. the Japanese began emerging along the Seiri Highway. The initial Japanese attack was repelled, and they had to pull back around 700 yards. The Japanese had failed to press their advantage, and to General Sharp, he thought, Events seem to be moving satisfactorily. Although the enemy controlled the beaches, and the northern terminus of the Seiri Highway, General Sharp's forces had disengaged without much loss, and were now in a decent defensive position. The general was so optimistic that he told his staff to work on plans for counterattacks north along the highway the following morning. That optimism at his HQ quickly faded when reports came that Colonel Morse 
had to withdraw his men from a defensive position astride the Seiri Highway, just six miles south of the beach. All hopes of counterattacks were then lost. Now General Sharp ordered all of his forces to defend two towns, Puntian and Dalarig. Possession of these two towns would enable the defenders to block all movement down the Seiri Highway, leading into central Mindanao. By May the 4th, the defenders had reached their designated positions, and on May the 5th, they were met by Japanese bombardments. Until May the 8th, the defenders were hit with artillery and aerial attacks. Then Kawamura sent a night raid. In the darkness, many of his forces managed to infiltrate Filipino defensive lines at Dalarig, creating pure chaos. During the confusion, two defending platoons mysteriously received orders to withdraw and pulled out of line. Before HQ could sort out the mess, the Japanese infiltrators began to take up positions, forcing night fights. By the morning, the tired and disorganized Filipino forces pulled off the main defensive lines to fall back into Dalarig. Kawamura continued to press his advantage and struck the retreating defenders in Dalarig from three different sides. The defenders scattered in all directions, leaving just two scout companies within the town to make a brave stand before withdrawing themselves, lest they get encircled. All the retreating defenders at Dalarig had to cross a flat open countryside, devoid of any cover. They were pursued by artillery fire from Dalarig and aircraft, leading to disaster and chaos. Many of the defenders threw their weapons down, fleeing, and a complete rout occurred. By the end of May the 9th, the Dalarig force virtually ceased to exist. Over in Putian, forces led by Colonel Dalton were fighting off more forces of Kawamura, but seeing Dalarig had fallen meant the Japanese could get around Putian's northern flank now. Dalton knew the Japanese could cut off his only escape routes. There was no way out. General Sharp realized the entire defensive line was being breached, and that the bulk of his forces were being annihilated. So he radioed MacArthur. North front in full retreat. Enemy comes through right flank. Nothing further can be done. May sign off any time now. Mindanao had fallen. Now the largest piece of the puzzle remained. That of Corregidor, commonly known as the Rock, or to some Americans, the Gibraltar of the East. It held 13,000 troops. The island was laced with anti-aircraft guns, artillery, and cannons. Many considered it to be impregnable. General Wainwright maintained control over Manila Bay, using its 56 coastal guns, motors, 48 50 caliber machine guns, 28 3-inch guns, and 10 Sperry searchlights. This only constituted the harbor defenses led by General Moore. Corregidor had three other heavily fortified islands protecting the approach to Manila Bay. Caballo Island with Fort Hughes, Carabao Island with Fort Frank, and El Frail Island with Fort Drum. Corregidor had been regularly bombarded from December the 28th to January the 6th by the Japanese 5th Air Group commanded by Lieutenant General Obata Hideyoshi. The attacks left the island's armaments unscathed but did do some damage and heavily demoralized the men. The defenders were on the last legs of their supplies, living on 30 ounces of food per day. 
When enemy bombardments killed a horse from the cavalry units, men would drag the carcasses down to the mess hall for consumption. Despite submarines still bringing food in, and mail and munitions that they could, it would never be enough and the garrison was doomed by a lack of supplies. As General Homa's guns began to churn Corregidor into a no-man's land, a favorite song became... I'm waiting for ships that never come in. Some of the men in the garrison wondered if the V's chalked on their helmets for victory actually stood for victim. It was a question of when, not whether, Corregidor would fall. Throughout February, the Kondo detachment, commanded by Major Kondo Toshinori, used four 105mm and two 150mm cannons, and later was reinforced with two additional 150mm howitzers to smash the island, failing still to cause any severe damage. By March the 15th, new reinforcements arrived to increase the bombardment from Pico de Loro, which caused damage to Forts Frank and Drum. Now when Batan fell, General Homa was able to place his heaviest artillery pieces right on the slopes of Medivelle's mountains to begin inflicting horrifying damage. From April the 12th, Corregidor's famed gun emplacements fought a protracted duel with the Japanese artillery. The 12-inch guns from batteries on Corregidor and Fort Drum with its 36-foot reinforced concrete encasements, battered the Japanese positions. However, over the next two weeks, Japanese artillery gradually wore down the American guns, and more particularly, their crews. Gunner Sergeant Waldron described the experience of being under fire. Sometimes the shell would come so fast and explode so close together that we stayed inside our tunnels. Nothing could survive that shelling. The enemy would pick out an area and start walking shells across it, and when they were through, it would look like no man's land. For the troops, the tension of being under fire for long periods of time was unbearable. Waldron recalled a sergeant named Rollings, who, quote, His nerves just went to pieces. And whenever he gave the command to commence firing, he would take off through the jungle, not knowing or caring where he ran. On April the 29th, Japanese artillery fire and bombing reached a crescendo. It was Emperor Hirohito's birthday. Two ammunition dumps exploded, solid rock cliffs were disintegrated, and uncontrollable grass fires swept the little island. Thick clouds of dust and smoke were all sent up. By the end of April, the American troops' ability to return fire had fallen off sharply, in spite of the continued availability of thousands of shells. By contrast, the Japanese bombardment increased in intensity, pouring thousands of shells into Corregidor. By May the 5th, most of Corregidor's guns had been silenced, and the defenders anticipated an invasion. That invasion would come at the hands of the 4th Division of General Kitano, who was selected to carry out two consecutive amphibious assaults, one with the 61st Regiment and some tanks from the 7th Tank Regiment to hit between Infantry Point and Cavalry Point, and the other would be using the 37th Regiment with one battalion of the 8th Regiment and an element of the 7th Tank Regiment. They were going to land between Battery Point and Morrison Point. 
At the same time, the 16th Division would launch a feint attack from Cavit against Forts Frank and Drum, sort of similar to how Singapore Island was attacked. After 27 days of siege, the Japanese artillery had done so much damage that the aerial bombers were emboldened to fly lower and smash harder as the anti-aircraft guns seemed to all be knocked out. The only safe place left was in the Malinta Tunnels, which held a bombproof shelter for the HQ, hospital, shops, and warehouses for Corregidor. The Malinta Tunnels, however, were not a place to fight from. Life outside the Malinta Tunnels was dangerous, but at least there was fresh air and light. The 10,000 people who lived safely in the rambling underground system suffered from an intolerable tension, nicknamed tunnelitis. The dust made breathing difficult, and the smell of death from the hospital pervaded every lateral. The heat was unbearable. Huge black flies, roaches, and other insects overran the place. Tempers grew shorter and shorter, and arguments piled up amongst any of the most minor transgressions. On May the 3rd, General Wainwright was told the water supply was dangerously low, and he radioed MacArthur. Situation here is fast becoming desperate. The next day, 16,000 shells smashed the island as the terrified men crouched in their foxholes, filling themselves with rage for the tunnel rats, as they called them in the Malinta Tunnels. But those inside the Malinta Tunnels were not doing great either. Most were at the point of hysteria. Wainwright wrote to General Marshall that day, in my opinion, the enemy is capable of making assault on Corregidor at any time. Success or failure of such an assault will depend entirely on the steadfastness of beach defense troops. Considering the present level of morale, I estimate that we have something less than an even chance to beat off an assault. I have given you, in accordance with your request, a very frank and honest opinion on the situation as I see it. The Japanese bombardment seemed to be concentrating its fire on a narrow tail of the island, hinting that would be where the invasion would take place. To the horror of the defenders, the intensity of the bombardment increased all the way up until May the 5th. If it can be believed, General Homa was yet again behind schedule. Corregidor should have fallen about two weeks prior, but the invasion had been delayed by a malaria epidemic, which was only squashed when Q9 tablets were flown in from Japan. On the evening of May the 4th, General Homa stood above the harbor of Lamau, anxiously watching landing craft carrying 2,000 men and several tanks as they disappeared into the dusk towards the rock. The odds were quite chilling. The assault troops faced at least seven times their number. In the darkness, the erratic tides and currents pushed the small invasion fleet a mile off its course, and as the first boats approached the shore, they were met with tremendous fire from two 75mm guns. 
Surprisingly, the defenders valiantly employed a few remaining batteries and sank a number of the boats, inflicting hundreds of casualties. Boat after boat were blown out of the water. The barrage was so intense that many of the invaders leapt out of their boats too soon and were dragged underwater by almost a hundred pounds of equipment. Less than a third of the assault force would survive. They landed further east than they expected, near North Point, and Colonel Gimpachi Seto led the men west towards Melenta Hill and south against Monkey Point. At midnight, a marine messenger raced into the tunnel, screaming, 600 Japs have landed! For three hours, Wainwright remained in suspense. Then came news that a marine anti-aircraft gun pit a mile from the tunnel had just been seized. Moments later, a radiogram came in from FDR praising the defenders as, quote, Living symbols of our war aims and a guarantee of victory. The Japanese pushed on towards the Malinta Tunnel's entrance under heavy fire, fending off three consecutive counterattacks. Just before dawn, 500 untrained sailors, the last reserves left at the mouth of the tunnel, crawled up towards the fighting. Together with the Marines of the HQ and Service Company, they launched an attack that completely surprised the Japanese, who were waiting for aerial and tank support, forcing them to fall back on both flanks. Then at 10 a.m., the American defenders could hear the ominous rumble of tanks. In hindsight, it was a mistake that MacArthur never brought tanks onto Corregidor to help with the defenses. You knew I had to toss one more punch at Dougie, didn't you? Once Wainwright learned that armor was moving against his men, who had no anti-tank defenses, a nightmare flashed through his mind, as he described it. A tank, nosing into the tunnel, spraying lead at the wounded and nurses. We can't hold out much longer. And that's just what he told the staff around him that they could not hold out much longer. He had lost an estimated 800 soldiers, and he knew further resistance was, well, pointless. What Wainwright did not know, though, was that the Japanese had taken 70% casualty rates in their landing of 2,000 troops, and they were really on their last legs. General Homa had used up the last of his reserves. It was, in fact, a close-run battle. At 10.15 a.m., he ordered Brigadier General Louis Beebe to broadcast a previously prepared surrender message. And in a choked voice, Wainwright said, Tell the nips that we'll cease firing at noon. To limit his own surrender to the four little islands in Manila Bay, he radioed Major General Sharp, releasing to him the rest of the Philippines. Guns were spiked, codes burnt, and radio equipment smashed. Wainwright wrote his very last message to FDR. With a broken heart and a head bowed in sadness, but not in shame, I report to your excellency that today I must arrange terms for the surrender of the fortified islands of Manila Bay. There is a limit of human endurance 
and that limit has long since been passed. Without prospect of relief, I feel it is my duty to my country and to my gallant troops to end this useless effusion of blood and human sacrifice. If you agree, Mr. President, please say to the nation that my troops and I have accomplished all that is humanly possible and that we have upheld the best traditions of the United States and its army. May God bless and preserve you and guide you and the nation in the effort to ultimate victory. With profound regret and with continued pride in my gallant troops, I go to meet the Japanese commander. Goodbye, Mr. President. Wainwright would later on write, It was the terror that is vested in a tank that was the decided factor. I thought of the havoc that even one of these could wreck if it nosed into the tunnel where lay our helpless wounded and their brave nurses. For the fighting men, it was a traumatic moment. Colonel Howard of the 4th Marines broke down and sobbed. My God, and I had to be the first Marine officer ever to surrender a regiment. All American guns ceased firing. Wainwright waited two hours. Then he drove east in a Chevrolet with five staff to Denver Hill. They continued on foot past the dead and dying. They were met the top of a hill by a Japanese group. A Japanese lieutenant said the surrender must include all American and Filipino troops in the entire archipelago. Wainwright responded, I do not choose to discuss surrender terms with you. Take me to your senior officer. Colonel Moto Nakayama, the same man who accepted King's surrender of Bataan, stepped forward and Wainwright told him he would surrender the four islands in Manila Bay. Nakayama replied angrily that he had explicit orders from General Homa to bring Wainwright to Bataan for capitulation ceremony only if he agreed to relinquish all troops. As of that point, General Homa had no idea that Corregidor wanted to surrender. A report had come in that 31 boats had been sunk during the night and that the reinforcement wave would need to be cancelled as they only had 21 landing craft left. Homa knew he faced disgrace, but suddenly a staff officer burst in with news that they had seen a white flag fluttering over Corregidor. Homa was so relieved that he radioed Nakayama to disregard former orders and bring Wainwright to Bataan at once. At 4 p.m., Wainwright leaning heavily upon a cane, looking very thin, stepped onto Bataan soil at Cab Caben. Two cars brought him and his party to a small house painted blue. The Americans waited on the open porch where they could see south out into the Manila Bay. Corregidor still erupting with shell bursts. The battle had apparently not ended as far as the Japanese were concerned. Wainwright and his companions were given cold water and lined up for pictures taken by Japanese newsmen. At 5pm, a Cadillac drew up with a barrel-chested General Homa looking crisp and vigorous in his olive drab uniform. He welcomed the Americans, stating, You must be very tired and weary. Wainwright thanked him, and they all sat on the porch around a long table. 
Wainwright handed over a signed note surrendering Corregidor, Forts Frank, Drum, and Hughes. Homa spoke quite a bit of English, but wanted his staff to understand the proceedings, so he had an interpreter read it aloud. His face was stony. He said he could only accept the surrender of all troops in the Philippines. Wainwright replied, The troops in the Visayan Islands and Mindanao are no longer under my command. They are commanded by General Sharp, who, in turn, is under General MacArthur's high command. Homa flushed. Was he being taken a fool? He ordered the interpreter to tell Wainwright the Japanese had intercepted messages from Washington confirming Wainwright's position as commander-in-chief of all Philippine forces. Wainwright simply insisted he held no authority over General Sharp. General Homa lost his patience and he banged the table with both fists as he faced his chief of staff stating in Japanese, What should we do, Wachi? Major General Takaji Wachi said he thought Wainwright was just lying to them. General Homa then said, In that case, we cannot negotiate. Let us continue the battle. Homa regained his composure, and he said in a more controlled voice to Wainwright, Since you are not in supreme command, I see no further necessity for my presence here. As General Homa got up to leave, one of Wainwright's staff called out an alarm, Wait! And the Americans held a quick conference. Pale-faced, Wainwright turned to General Homa and said, In the face of the fact that further bloodshed in the Philippines is unnecessary and futile, I will assume command of the entire American forces in the Philippines at the risk of serious reprimand by my government following the war. Despite this, Homa was offended and doubted Wainwright's sincerity. He told the Americans to go back to Corregidor and think the matter over. Then Homa said, If you see fit to surrender, then do so to the commanding officer of the regiment on Corregidor. He in turn will bring you to me in Manila. I call this meeting over. Good day. General Homa then nodded to the Americans, walked over to his Cadillac, and left. Wainwright chewed the cigarette in his mouth to shreds, stating to Nakayama, What do you want of us to do now? Nakayama replied, We will take you and your party back to Corregidor, and you can do what you damn please. It was all a bit of a garbled confusion, as everyone was relying on the sole interpreter, Kazumaro Uno who had grown up in Utah. Uno sympathized with the plight of the Americans and he explained to Nakayama that Wainwright was quite ready to surrender all of the Philippines. Nakayama sighed and he said he would accompany Wainwright to Corregidor and he added, First thing tomorrow morning, you will go to General Homa with a new surrender and a promise to contact the other American forces in the Philippines. As they returned, Wainwright saw campfires all over Corregidor, guessing the Japanese had already landed the reinforcements. He was led around the Malinta Hill, 
and introduced to the island commander, Colonel Seto. The Malinta tunnel had been cleared, except for those in the hospital. Colonel Seto was preparing to attack the main part of the island, topside. Wainwright was told only unconditional surrender would save his men from the slaughter. Under some feeble light, Wainwright signed a document accepting all of General Homa's original demands. By midnight, Wainwright was escorted to the west entrance of the Malinta Tunnel, and as he walked by, Americans and Filipinos reached out to touch his hand or pat him on the shoulder, some saying, It's all right, General. You did your best. Wainwright's humiliation had only just begun, as the following morning he was summoned by his operations officer, Colonel Trawick telling him the Japanese would fly the colonel to Mindanao so he could personally deliver a letter to General Sharp, which would read, You will therefore be guided accordingly, and I will repeat, will surrender all troops under your command, both in the Visayan Islands and Mindanao, to the proper Japanese officer. This decision on my part, you will realize, was forced upon me by means beyond my control. Colonel Trawick was empowered to even arrest General Sharp if he failed to follow the instructions. Wainwright pitifully said, Jesse, I'm depending on you to carry out these orders. Later that afternoon, Wainwright and five of his officers were taken by boat to Bataan and received their first food they had had in two days, rice and some fish. After that, they were brought by car to Manila, where they were met by Lieutenant Hisamichi Kano of the Propaganda Corps. Kano was educated in New York and New Jersey. He greeted Wainwright warmly, offering him some fruit. Wainwright was forced to read a prepared speech. It was a combination of his letter to Sharp and Japanese adjustments. He addressed General Sharp in the message. You will repeat the complete text of this letter and such other instructions as Colonel Trawick will guide you by radio to General MacArthur. However, let me emphasize that there must be on your part no thought of disregarding these instructions. Failure to fully and honestly carry them out can have only the most disastrous results. If and when such faithfulness of execution is recognized, the commander-in-chief of the Japanese forces in the Philippine Islands will order that all firing be ceased. Taking all circumstances into consideration, and... After a long pause, the Filipino announcer, Marcela Victor Young, broke in and he signed off. It was 12.20 a.m. of May the 8th. Kano offered the American scotch, as the speech was heard by the American and Filipinos throughout the Philippines. General Sharp did not know what to do. That very morning, he received a message from Wainwright, relinquishing his command to him. Now he was taking it back? He asked MacArthur what to do. MacArthur replied on radio, Orders emanating from General Wainwright have no validity. If possible, separate your force into small elements and initiate guerrilla operations. You, of course, have full authority to make any decision that immediate emergency may demand. Keep in communication with me as much as possible. You are gallant and resourceful, Commander. 
I am proud of what you have done. General Sharp was not reassured by this at all. He decided to wait for Wainwright's emissary. Two days later, upon Trawick's arrival, Sharp read Wainwright's letter and concluded there was no real alternative. He immediately ordered the commanders of the various islands to cease all operations against the Japanese army at once. General Sharp then radioed MacArthur, Dire necessity alone has prompted this action. General Douglas MacArthur sent a message to Washington, received by General Marshall, which read, I have just received word from Major General Sharp that General Wainwright, in two broadcasts on the night of the 7th and 8th, announced he was reassuming command of all forces in the Philippines and directed their surrender, giving in detail the method of accomplishment. I believe Wainwright has temporarily become unbalanced, and his condition renders him susceptible of enemy use. Nothing could be said or done, however. The Philippines had fallen. General Homa was in no triumphant mood. He was in disfavor with the Army General Staff because of his countless requests for reinforcements and failure to meet deadlines. Moreover, General Count Hisiachi Teriachi of the Southern Army was displeased with General Homa's lenient treatment of Filipino civilians. Homa had forbidden pillage and rape and ordered his troops to respect Filipino customs, traditions, and religion. Homa defended himself, stating he was following the emperor's instructions to bring enlightenment to Southeast Asia. Homa had also suppressed a propaganda pamphlet describing the exploitation of the Philippines by the Americans. Homa told Teriachi to his face that the Americans had never exploited the Philippines and that it was wrong to make false statements. They administered a very benevolent supervision over the Philippines. Japan should establish an even better and more enlightened supervision. General Homa's insistent tolerance left Teriachi more resolved than ever to send a bad report back to Tokyo of his actions. This also led Colonel Tsuichi to countermand Homa's orders. Without Homa's knowledge, as he alleged, until two days after Wainwright's surrender, Major General Kiyotake Kawaguchi burst into Homa's office accusing Homa of having authorized the execution of Chief Justice Jose Abad Santos and wanted to know why Santos had been willing to work with the Japanese. But when Kawaguchi radioed Manila, he received an order, quote, His guilt is obvious. Dispose of him immediately. Kawaguchi thought this to be an outrageous betrayal of Bushido, and the emperor for that matter. So he threw a staff officer from Manila named Ionuzaka out of his office for insisting on the execution of the Santos and his son as well. Kawaguchi wrote to an old friend, Major General Yoshihide Hashiya, the military advisor of the 14th Army, reiterating why the two Santos should be spared. Two weeks later, Kawaguchi received another dispatch from Manila ordering him to deliver the two Santos to Davo Garrison for immediate execution. Kawaguchi crumpled up the message, but Inuzaka kept pressuring him to make sure the order was done. Kawaguchi summoned the two prisoners and told them, 
He had done his utmost to save their lives, but was now forced to execute the elder Santos. He told the elder, I promise to protect your son, so don't worry. The elder Santos pleaded that he had never been anti-Japanese. I appreciate your kindness towards me and my son, and I wish glory for your country. The elder Santos then turned and said to his son, When you see your mother, give her my love. I will soon die. Be a man of honor and work for the Philippines. The elder Santos was taken to a nearby coconut plantation where he declined to be blindfolded before being shot by firing squad. General Homa was dumbfounded to learn of the Santos execution from Kawaguchi. He too had a high regard for the man and he appreciated his friendship for Japan. He remembered approving Kawaguchi's original request for clemency and had ordered Hayashi to take care of the matter. Homa was mortified and he told Kawaguchi, I regret very much what has happened. The next day, Kawaguchi confronted Hayashi and said, What a keshikaran, shameful, thing you have done. I trusted you as my classmate. Hayashi went on the defensive. Homa had already admonished him. But, but, Imperial Headquarters was so insistent about the execution of the Santos. Kawaguchi quickly replied, Whom do you mean by Imperial Headquarters? Hayashi simply said, It was Toichi. General Homa's reprimands would have little effect on those staff officers determined to carry out Toichi's policy of revenge. A few weeks later, General Manuel Roxas, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, was captured on Mindanao, and a message came from Manila ordering the local commander, General Toria Ikuta, to execute him secretly and immediately. The order was authorized in the name of General Homa and stamped by Hayashi and three other staff officers. On Batan, Ikuta refused to shoot prisoners without a written order, but even being given one this time, he found himself incapable to do it. So he turned over the responsibility to his chief of staff, Colonel Nobuhiko Jimbo. Jimbo was a balding man with glasses and a Tojo-styled mustache. He was also a Catholic. It was torment for Jimbo to drive Roxas and another high-ranking prisoner towards the execution grounds. The other prisoner begged for his life during the hour-long drive. The man was a former governor, not a soldier, and he pleaded he had always cooperated with the Japanese. As the man became more and more hysterical, Roxas patted his shoulder and said to him, Look at the Sambagita. Aren't they beautiful? Those are a white blossom natural to the Philippines. Jimbo decided to try and save the men. He left the two prisoners under guard in a small town and returned to Davao to persuade General Ikuta to ignore the execution order. Jimbo's arguments were all Ikuta needed, as the two men decided to use Roxas to help restore law and order, but in the meantime, they would keep them well hidden. Jimbo was court-martialed for his actions, 
He flew to Manila to confront General Homa. But General Homa was away, and instead he had to speak to his chief of staff, General Wachi. Wachi was shocked by the orders, stating Homa would have never given them. Wachi could not cancel any stamped order with Homa's name, but he could suspend them temporarily, and that is just what he did. Jimbo could hear Wachi go into the next room to confront Hayashi, where he angrily shouted out, Did you men issue the order to execute General Roxas? Hayashi and the others denied it, so Wachi shouted, Colonel Jimbo, come in. Hayashi and the other staff officers glared at Jimbo as he handed the execution order, and they were all forced to confess that it was them who stamped it. Hayashi said, We stamped it without giving it too much thought. Hayashi then turned to Jimbo and shouted, You have done a terrible thing to us. When General Homa found out, he was quite pleased with Jimbo's initiative and reported it all to Emperor Hirohito. Roxas was saved, but the entire ordeal emphasized the subversion of Homa's own command. Homa's career was already in jeopardy. Tokyo was unhappy with Homa's lack of aggression and his leniency towards the Filipinos. Homa went against the advice of his general staff, and he ordered the release of Filipino soldiers in the prison camps. He was eventually relieved of his command, ordered to return to Japan to retire in semi-disgrace without making the traditional report of a returning commander to the emperor. General Roxas survived the war, and he became the first president of the republic. In August of 1946, he learnt the man who had saved his life was still a prisoner in North China awaiting trial as a war criminal. Roxas wrote a personal letter to Chiang Kai-shek, requesting amnesty for Jimbo. Jimbo was released and returned to Japan the following year. After the war, General Homa was put on trial, convicted and executed as a war criminal by the man he had defeated, General Douglas MacArthur. Homa's chief defense counsel, John Skeen, called it, quote, a highly irregular trial conducted in an atmosphere that left no doubt as to what the ultimate outcome would be. The other defense staff signed a letter to General Homa stating that he had been unjustly convicted. Associate Justice Frank Murphy of the U.S. Supreme Court protested the verdict, stating, This nation's very honor, as well as its hope for the future, is at stake. Either we conduct such a trial as this in the noble spirit and atmosphere of our Constitution, or we abandon all pretense to justice. Let the ages slip away and descend to the level of revengeful blood purges. A nation must not perish, because in the natural frenzy of the aftermath of war, it's abandoned the central theme of the dignity of the human personality and due process of law. While awaiting his sentence, Homa wrote to his wife, Fujiko, In the 20 years of our married life, we've had many differences of opinion and even violent quarrels. Those quarrels have now become sweet memories. Now as I am about to part from you, I particularly see your good qualities, and I have completely forgotten any defects. 
I have no worry about leaving the children in your hands, because I know you will raise them to be right and strong. Twenty years feel short, but they are long. I am content that we lived a happy life together. If there is what is called the other world, we'll be married again. I'll go first, wait for you there, but you mustn't hurry. Live as long as you can for the children, and do those things for me I haven't been able to do. You will see our grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren, and tell me all about them when we meet again in the other world. Thank you very much for everything. Homa also sent a letter to his children just before his execution. There are six men here who have been sentenced for life. It will be better to be shot to death, like dying an honorable death on the battlefield, than spending a disgraceful life in such a cage the rest of one's life. Don't lose courage, children. Don't give in to temptation. Walk straight on the road of justice. The spirit of your father will long watch over you. Your father will be pleased if you will make your own way in the right direction rather than bring flowers to his grave. Do not miss the right course. This is my very last letter. Ending on a bit of a dramatic note, but I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, please check out my personal channel, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. I wanted to, again, show you the cases where humanity can be found, albeit in a minority of cases amongst the Japanese higher command. It is important to know not everyone just followed orders, so to say. Corregidor has fallen, but the courage of the battling bastards of Bataan kept the Allied morale alive. 